Well, good morning, Fellowship Church friends and guests. The Lord be with you. It is an hour earlier this morning. The time has changed, and this is maybe for the last time, maybe not. Uh, to the best of my understanding, this time change thing has existed uh, perhaps because of the farmers uh, or also maybe school kids and bus schedules trying to align the beginning of the day with the rising of the sun. And yet it was the psalmist who said way, way before any of these discussions that it is from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same that the name of the Lord is to be praised and I will praise God's name. Does that describe you this morning? Is that the spirit in which you've arrived in this place? Perhaps maybe you've uh, got something else on the mind. Maybe there's groceries to get. Maybe there's company coming over to your house today. Maybe you've got bills to pay or work to do yet this afternoon. Maybe you got nothing really going on at all today. It's just an empty space. And yet we are invited from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same to bless God's name. And the table is set this morning. The table is set with word and sacrament. The table is set with the example of Christ's self-giving love for us. The table is set with images that represent humanity's rejection of him and yet God's great love and invitation to us regardless. And we are invited to gather and to worship God in this way. So again, are you ready? Are you eager to join the party that God is hosting like a banquet feast to gather in God's presence and to bless his name, to praise him from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same we do that this morning by standing and singing.
may be seated. Friends, each week of Lent, we are engaging in a different type of prayer. And this morning, our prayer is a guided practice that Christians have been engaging in for many years. It's called Lectio Divina. 
It's a Latin phrase that means a sacred or divine reading of scripture. In Lectio Divina, instead of simply reading the scriptures for information, we allow the scripture text to read us, quieting ourselves and listening for what the Holy Spirit is speaking to us in the text. In Lectio Divina, we hear or read the text multiple times, interspersed with silence, and we engage it prayerfully each time. If you are new to this practice, and even if you're not, we invite you to join us this week in practicing Lectio Divina. We have these cards that were given to you uh, with your bulletin, um, and each week we're engaging in a different prayer practice, and there's guides for that. So we encourage you to take one of those and do that this week. But in this moment, you can settle in and all guide us through the prayer. Our text this morning is from Revelation 22, 14 and 17. As we begin, let's take a moment to come fully into this present now. Take a deep breath and allow your body to relax, becoming aware of God's presence with us. In this moment of silence, express your willingness to hear from God using a silent prayer such as, Come, Lord Jesus, or Here I am, Lord. Speak, for your servant is listening. As I read the passage the first time, listen for a word or a phrase that stands out among the rest. Don't worry about what it means yet or why it was given. Simply listen for a word and maintain a gentle sense of expectancy that God is speaking to us. Revelation 22, 14 and 17. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. As we hear the passage again, listen for the way this text or the word or phrase that you have heard connects with your life. Ask yourself, what is it in my life right now that needs to hear this word? In the silence that follows, explore your thoughts, perceptions, and sensory impressions as you hear these words expressed specifically to you. Revelation 22, 14 and 17. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life.
as we hear the passage a final time, listen for your own deepest and truest response. In the silence after the text, allow your prayer to flow spontaneously from your heart. Enter into a personal dialogue with God, sharing with God whatever thoughts and feelings have bubbled to the surface. Is there joy, sorrow, anger, repentance, desire, need, conviction, consecration? Whatever it is, pour it out honestly to God and pay attention to how God is inviting you to respond to the word you have heard. Revelation 22, 14 and 17. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. The final movement of Lectio Divina is rest. So as we respond in song, you are invited to release and return to a place of rest in God. In a posture of total yieldedness, we ask God to plant his word deep in our hearts, and we wait and we rest so that it might yield fruit in our lives. Would you stand and let's sing together?
sisters and brothers in Christ, it is because of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection that we have peace not only with God, but also with one another. The peace of Christ be with you. I invite you, as you are comfortable, to share a sign of peace with your neighbor. ready this morning. <laughs> Good morning, fellowship. My name is Tiara. I am one of the pastors here. If I've not yet met you, and whether you are joining us um, online or you're joining us in the atrium or you're joining us here in the sanctuary, it is a gift to be able to gather for worship with you today. Uh, if you are new with us, um, this is your first Sunday, maybe you've been here for a couple of Sundays and you are ready to take the next step to get to know us a little bit better as a community, we would love to get to know you as well. And to do that, there's some cards in the back of the sanctuary that look like this. Um, if you fill that out, you take it over to the Welcome Center. There's some great folks there who would love to meet you, love to greet you by name and help you to take the next step with us. Um, tonight, um, if you are looking for just the chance to uh, continue in worship, um, to sing with us some new songs, some older songs that you are probably really familiar with, um, tonight we are hosting a night of worship here in the sanctuary at 6.30 p.m. And it'll just be a time of refreshment and rejuvenation. Uh, you can read a little bit more about that in the bulletin this morning and hope to see you later today. Um, we are heading into the last two weeks of our community nights for the season, um, and it's not too late to hop in. And in fact, tonight or this Wednesday, we are launching um, a, a two-week course um, with Reverend Doctor, our, our very own Reverend Doctor Suzanne McDonald, uh, who will be doing a class called "Dealing Faithfully with Dementia." She's done this in a number of other places, hasn't done it here at Fellowship. But there's a number of folks who have actually talked about this recently with some of the pastors, and and so we wanted to offer this as an opportunity. So two weeks, you can hop in. It's an hour-long um, community night starts at 5.45 with a meal. Classes start at 6.30 p.m. in addition to all of our other classes that we are continuing to run. Uh, so it is the Lenten season. I can't remember if this is Lent three or four. Three, time change, yeah, three or four. <laughs> it's Lent three. Uh, and because we are in the season of Lent, um, we've been in a collective journey of, um, you've noticed this on the cards, of prayer and fasting and mercy this season. Uh, Jessica just led you through the practice of Lectio Divina. That's our prayer practice for the week. Uh, a number of you have talked about um, fasting with us this season as well. Um, and our mercy practice for the week comes right out of Matthew 25, uh, welcoming the stranger. And to do that, we are joining our local mission partner, Habitat for Humanity, uh, to build um, a home, to work on a home this Friday. Uh, there's two time slots available, so you can hop in at a time that's convenient for you. And to sign up for that, you can actually literally go 
right to the Welcome Center and there's a list with a pen. It's like super old school. There's a list with a pen and you can like put your name on there. It's great. <laughs> it's super efficient. Uh, so I'd love to see you uh, at Habitat for Humanity this Friday if you can make it over for that. Um, and there's some other practices on the card too to help you welcome the stranger. Some things that are coming up uh, like a borderlands trip um, a little later in the year. And you can learn more about that from Reverend Skipper. Uh, so last thing for Lent, you may have noticed in the lobby and over the last couple of weeks that we have been doing something like an art installation in the gallery. Uh, we have some really, really talented people uh, here at Fellowship, um, our very own brothers and sisters here who are amazing artists, and we invited them to meditate on the passion of Christ um, and specifically what the passion of Christ teaches us today. Um, and they've done that faithfully and really, really well and really, really artistically. And so you've seen some of the pieces. There's a third piece that, we are, um, that we've installed for this week uh, that was put together by Aaron. Um, Aaron um, specifically meditated on the messiness of redemption. So hear a little bit more about what she had to say about that. My name is Erin Bodenbender and my piece is Spilled Goblet on a Lambskin. The medium for this piece was charcoal and graphite pencils and this is not a medium I'm very comfortable with. I haven't worked with it very much, but I think it really fit the meaning of the piece for me. Um, the story of The Last Supper is not a comfortable story. It's not a story that's most supposed to make us feel good and happy. Um, and so I think that working in a medium I was not totally comfortable with really encapsulated that feeling for me. As far as the piece goes, I kept it black and white and really tried to have the only color be the wine spilled. Um, there's something very tangibly uncomfortable about a mess for us. We don't like looking at it. We don't like feeling that. And I think that that really fit the meaning of this piece. One of my biggest inspirations and reasons why I create is to invoke feeling through art. And I think that using the idea of discomfort and um, the mess to invoke that feeling in us all is really why I created this piece the way I did. You can check out Aaron's piece in the gallery after service today. Um, and with that, um, children up to, what is it, third grade through eighth grade, you are dismissed to continue worship. Um, and those of you who are older than eighth grade, you can continue worship with here. Would you stand and join us in singing?
The Lord be with you, Fellowship Church. Before we get started, let's pray. God, thank you for uh, the sunshine, for a beautiful day, for the chance to gather together as your people, and for the chance to encounter your word, uh, living and active in this world and even in us. May it uh, spark in us a new love for you and an appreciation for all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. How'd you get roped into that? Aren't you already super busy? Why would you say yes to that? Have you ever heard this line of questioning? I have on occasion heard it from colleagues, but most of the time I hear this same line of questioning from someone I'm very close with, someone I live with, not to name any names, (coughs) Becca. Behind those questions, though, is not a judgment of me or my character. It's not even a questioning of the worthiness of the cause that I'm saying yes to. What's behind the question is motive. Are you agreeing to this because you're expected to or someone else is expecting you to? Or are you receiving an invitation, willing to use your gifts for something that God is up to in this world? The question is really about who you're serving When we ask those questions, we're asking, is our heart in the right place? This morning's reading is yet another challenging parable by Jesus that causes us to examine our own hearts. It's another parable that at first glance makes the hair on the back of our necks rise up a little bit in discomfort. But isn't that what we have found all throughout the Gospel of Matthew? In Matthew, Jesus' words are direct, confrontational, sometimes inspirational. Like a great teacher, Jesus' words are meant to change us, to snap us out of it, to cause something inside of us. I remember when uh, we started this series, Pastor Ross invited us to imagine a car accident happening over at River and Lakewood, uh, and, and how if you were, depending on what corner of the street you're at, on, you would see the, the accident different, and then you would tell other people based on your experience of that accident. And he made the analogy that the gospel writers are doing something similar with the life of Jesus. Well, Matthew's gospel, Matthew's writing, is intended for a Jewish audience. It's intended to change them. It's intended to spark something inside of them because he wants to hammer home the point that to be a follower of Jesus, to see Jesus as a master teacher, not just a rabbi, but the rabbi, to see Jesus as the Messiah, the one that God has sent, the fully divine and fully human. Following that Jesus is vastly different than the Jewish faith you grew up in. And so, as you listen to this parable this morning, wonder with me about what distinction Jesus is calling out for the Pharisees. Listen for the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, look, I have prepared dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. 
<laughs> but they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, maltreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. So he sent troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned down their city. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited are not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. And so the slaves went and into the streets and gathered all who they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed that there was a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, take him into the outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Do you remember the first really fun wedding you went to? Not the one that you had to because you were a child or expected to as a family, but one that you went to of a friend maybe, or at least you got to sat, sit at a table with all of your friends, not in the back corner with all the great aunts and uncles or the great nieces and nephews, but a festive one where you were in the middle of it all, you know, where you could enjoy some good food and beverage, maybe a great camaraderie around the table, and maybe in the end of the night you were even cutting some rug on the dance floor. I have fond memories of a few such weddings right after we graduated from college, which seems like a long time ago. But I also remember a wedding right smack dab in the middle of all those fun weddings of a family member's wedding, family member's wedding that stood in sharp contrast. It was a wedding of a distant cousin in a nearby Midwestern state that we had to travel to. It was a hot summer day in the Midwest, and you know where I'm going when it's a hot summer day in the Midwest. Of course, you went to an ancient old church that didn't have air conditioning, and you got to sweat it out in the sanctuary. And the service seemed to last forever. Not only did they do all the normal things, the preaching and the exchange of rings and the exchange of vows, but then bonus, I love this and I love the idea, but the, on this day, it wasn't so good. We got to feast at the communion table after the priest got up and did the whole big liturgy. And then one by one, we got to be served by the wedding couple. One by one, one by one. Oh, and don't you forget, after you have a feast like that, you have to do what? You have to sing. So the whole congregation had to stand up and sing. An hour and 15 minutes later, we were in the receiving line shaking hands with everybody. But don't think it was over yet. No, no, no. Because after that, we got to do family photos up on the stage with everybody involved. And then after the family photos, you know, it wouldn't be a good wedding if you didn't have, what, three or four hours between the ceremony and the reception. Graciously, though, the couple was so nice that they rented a small meeting room at the hotel or some obscure movie theater, I don't remember exactly, and we got to watch not our favorite movie, but their favorite movie, some obscure Renaissance rom-com. I don't know, it was terrible. <laughs> Needless to say, if we weren't expected to be at this wedding, we would have left a long time ago, especially since they didn't even serve us food at the wedding reception. We had to get McDonald's on the way. I'm just kidding about that part. 
The contrast of what happened at this wedding versus some of my friends' weddings was strong. But I also know that my heart's posture towards the weddings was also vastly different. My cousin's wedding, I was expected to be there, and I had the attitude, prove it. Prove that this is going to be fun. I am going to endure this wedding. Whereas at my friend's wedding, I was honored to be invited, eager even to see what would happen. It seems to me that one of the things that the parable of the wedding banquet reveals is a contrast between a heart of expectation and a heart of invitation. You remember the gist of the parable. A king has a wedding banquet for his son. It's a big festive party. In those days, it was a week long. Hour and 15 would have been nothing for them. They're partying all week long. And so he sends out servants to bring in the people that have been invited. Not once, but twice. After the first time, it's pretty offensive. After the second time, it's really offensive, especially when you murder uh, the slaves that they sent out. And so the king, in a really troubling and problematic way, if we think about this as an allegory, ends up sending out other people, his soldiers, to take care of them by destroying those murderers and burning down their city. And then the king ends up doing the real shocking thing of it all by inviting everyone and anyone into the wedding banquet. And then it concludes with that weird little twist at the end, right? Where there's someone that's not wearing the right clothes and they get sent off to the weeping and the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yet another parable that my beloved colleagues bestowed me with. So grateful. It is a vivid one in the Gospel of Matthew, isn't it? And it's somewhat troubling once again. But like the other parables, I think it's intended to expand our limited understanding of the kingdom and maybe even point to a heart posture that needs to change from expectation to invitation. You see, Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 is talking with the Pharisees talking with the Pharisees. He has just, in the day before, flipped over the tables of the temple, causing a huge uproar, getting everybody in the establishment really upset. And so he spends a night out in Bethany at at the local Holiday Inn Express before coming back the next day to teach in the temple. So you can read about all of this in Matthew chapter 21. And uh, the the Pharisees are going to have nothing of this Jesus guy back at it again. And so they go and they try to confront Jesus with a trick question. They try to stump him, catch him off guard. And Jesus returns their trick question with an even trickier trick question. They're stunned into silence. And then Jesus seemingly kind of goes on the offense with three parables. The, wedding of the, the parable of the wedding feast is the third parable, his parting shot, his last words in this encounter with the Pharisees. It's a dispute. It's a disagreement. It's a confrontation. But what do you think Jesus is confronting? What is he calling out for the Pharisees? What's he trying to teach those Pharisees? Maybe he's trying to teach them that God's kingdom is more like a wedding banquet, a feast, a festive party, as Pastor Ross said at the beginning. It's joyful. It's going to be a good stinking time. And he's contrasting that with the Pharisees' expectation of the end being more like a courtroom where you have ticks for the good and ticks for the bad, and you better hope your ticks for the good are a little bit higher than your ticks for the bad. Or maybe, maybe Jesus is pointing to the consistent effort God has made to invite his people to the banquet. Not once, but not twice, but three times. 
And he's contrasting that with the Pharisees' consistent efforts to create boundaries, to make it more difficult, to make exclusions, to embody an ethic of meritocracy, as we talked about last week, before entering into community with the Jews. Or maybe, maybe Jesus is appealing to them to be like the slaves who no matter what the cost, no matter what the thing, are keep on inviting people in. And he's contrasting that with the Pharisees' expectation that faith is only for the chosen ones. Or maybe Jesus is just pointing out the consequences of not receiving the invitation and the judgments of God. Yes, 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 yes. Any of these, and probably all of these, are some of the things that Jesus is confronting with the Jews. But what I found fascinating as I considered this text this week is the juxtaposition between those who were invited and did not come and those who were invited and attended the wedding banquet. I think the parable reveals something about the heart posture necessary, one of invitation rather than expectation. You see, the Pharisees' expectation blinded them to what God was up to in the story. Their hearts of expectation of who God was, their hearts of expectation about what other people were, and even their expectations of themselves voided their chance of seeing God. What do I mean? The Pharisees' expectation of God led to the absence of God in their lives because they didn't need him. They assumed if we do this, then God is going to do that. If we follow the law, then we will be blessed. If we can check the box, if we can do the right thing, then we can make ourselves right and deserving of love based on our actions, which resulted in the myth that they don't really need God because it's up to them. But the Pharisees' expectation of others also prevented them from seeing God in their lives. They assumed if we create boundaries, if we can know who's in and who's out, if we can raise the bar of expectations for everybody before they become a part of this community, then we'll keep ourselves pure, which prevented them from seeing the transformation that can happen in someone when they encounter God. Because that transformation had to happen before they were entered into the community which resulted in a missing out of what God was up to in the lives of other people. And the Pharisees' expectation of themselves led to dishonesty and estrangement from God. Why? Because they had created such a high bar for everyone else, including themselves, to jump over that if they, never, if they didn't quite meet the bar, then they couldn't be honest about that. They couldn't tell anybody about that. And heaven forbid they tell God about that, which led to an an absence of God in their lives, in a strange relationship. I think the Pharisees' expectant hearts broke their relationship with God and caused them not to see and experience all the, God, the good that God was doing in their lives and in the lives of others. Don't we sometimes have a similar challenge? Don't we sometimes have expectations of God that he'll respond favorably to us based on our acts of faith? Don't we even sometimes expect others to agree with us because clearly we have it all figured out? Don't we sometimes hold out unreal expectations of others and maybe even of ourselves and hold out expectations that we can't even meet? 
Don't we have hidden expectations that our life is supposed to go a certain way because of all the good we've done? I think this heart of expectation, as I'm calling it, is a heart that's hardened to serve and justify ourselves. And it often blinds us to what God is doing in this world and even in us. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have expectations. Our hearts are kind of factories for expectations, aren't we? But what I am saying is that our expectations of God, others, and ourselves can sometimes blind us to what God is doing. And it sometimes prevents us from experiencing what God is inviting us into. Sometimes we, too, miss the party because we're stuck on our, in our own expectations. Some of you have helped me see that expectant heart, how that expectant heart has blinded me to seeing God in others. I think that most of us as parents have a lot of expectations for our children. We have a yearning for them to be a certain way or to do a certain thing, and those aren't all bad, but sometimes those expectations of our children entangle, are entangled with a parent's own brokenness, an unmet longing of our own from our childhood, or maybe a desire to maintain some kind of facade or image. Those expectations that I place on my kids at times can sometimes blind me to the beauty of what God is doing in them. But when we, like some of you have for me and for one another, call out the beauty in another person, call out the beauty of what God is doing in my kids, while sometimes convicted of my expectant heart, I begin to see them and God a little bit differently. And for that, I'm grateful. I said I wanted to contrast this expectant heart that blinds us to what God is doing with a heart of invitation that's open, that's open to seeing and receiving the good that God is doing this in this world and even the good that God is doing in us. Because I think the shock of the parable is that after the deserving ones, the ones that were invited originally rejected the invitation, the king opens up the banquet to anyone and everyone off of the street, both good and bad, it explicitly says. I mean, he's assuming a pretty large security risk as a king inviting these, who knows, into the the wedding banquet. But more so, he's publicly admitting that the invitees would not come. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine someone of royalty admitting that the people that they invited are not willing to come to their party and so they're going to invite anybody and everybody? That's absurd. It's unheard of. Today we would have done a destination wedding, called it just fine. The three of us will be all right heading over to the Bahamas or whatever. The shock of the parable is not just that the strangers were invited in or that received that invitation. Maybe more so it's that the king would even invite them at all and publicly admit that his friends wouldn't come. The heart of invitation is most revealed in the king, in the God who yearns for all people to come to the banquet, in the God who is willing to send his own son to make that possible, in the God whose only requirement is a heart open to receive such a gracious invitation, a heart that is open to change. Which leads to the final twist when Jesus really seems to hammer the point home with this guest who was wearing the wrong clothes. I like one commentator's theory that suggests that at weddings in antiquity like this one, uh, especially ones hosted by a king, one of uh, affluence and means, the wedding clothes that people, robes that people wore at the wedding would be given to them by the host. 
Everyone wears the king's clothes that they've been bestowed. It's a gift like a party favor of sorts that everyone would have been given. The reason that this man was kicked out was not because he didn't have access to the right clothes, not because he, he, he didn't have time to go find the right clothes or that he didn't have the means to buy the clothes necessary, but his refusal to wear the attire that had been given to him. He was willing to come but he was unwilling to let go of the expectation that he had for how this wedding was supposed to go. He somehow still wanted it to be about him. He was unwilling to change and receive the gift of grace. This parable is about, a heart, heart, about how our hearts can be hardened by our expectations, but they can also be softened by the grace and love of a king, of a father. I appreciated this little sto- short story called Capital of the World by Ernest Hemingway. I found this. I didn't read this on my own. But he tells of a similar parable about a wealthy family uh, where the dad and the teenage son have a significant falling out, a big disagreement that leads to the son running away from home, no communication with his family whatsoever. And so the father searches high and low for five months through the entire metropolitan area of Madrid, Spain, looking for his son. And finally, at last resort, this father places an ad in the major newspaper of the time, the El Libreal, and the ad says this, Dear Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday. All is forgiven. Signed, Papa. What his dad forgot was that Paco was a pretty common name in Spain, short for Francisco. So when he showed up there at the hotel on noon, at noon on Tuesday, there were 800 Pacos were waiting for forgiveness. 800 children yearning for forgiveness from their father. 800 people with a heart of invitation, open to what God was doing in their life, open to what their father was offering them. My friends, the parable of the wedding feast is ripe with judgment for the expectant heart that is blind to our need for forgiveness. But it's even more abundantly clear for those with a heart of invitation, for those willing to respond and receive, the love of a father is eager to be shared with them. How will you open your heart this week to such a father's love? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. The Spirit and the Bride say, come, let all who are thirsty come. Would you stand and let's sing together in response.
My friends, let's not let our expectations of God, others, or ourselves rob us from the great invitation that God is offering of free grace and love in Jesus Christ, his son. May the grace of that Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Let's stand and continue standing as we sing the doxology together. <laughs> 